We come to you, Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, and we worship you this morning because you are worthy. You are worthy of honor. You are worthy of all glory because to you belongs all dominion, all authority. And as we reflect on what we've been given, what we've been included in, coming around this table, remembering the sacrifice of this Lord of glory, we cannot but express our gratitude, fall humbly at the feet of Christ and worship him as our Lord, our Savior. And I pray that you would stir in us greater affections for Christ this morning as we continue to behold him, as we continue to learn from him. Teach us what it's like to trust you, to surrender all the cares of this world to him, knowing that he cares, knowing that he loves. I pray that the Spirit would work among us as we were just singing. Conform us more and more into the image of the one we praise, our Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, church. Praise the Lord. It is so good to see you gathered here, worshiping the Lord I hope you're really encouraged uh, this morning because we just have a great opportunity to participate in communion. And communion is one of those privileges that only his children partake in. And I was just thinking, sitting here, participating, um, all kinds of people are here from all kinds of backgrounds, right, nationalities, um, differences, difficulties, and yet the blood of Christ unites us all so that we can praise him and worship him, and, and it's a bit of a prelude to what will take place then when we will sit around his throne and worship our Savior. Praise the Lord. We'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 as we continue to walk with Jesus as he ministers in Galilee. Matthew chapter 8, we will be looking at verses 23 through 27 this morning. Before we look at our text, I wanted to remind you why we're studying this great gospel. Right, we're, We've decided earlier on this year when we began in chapter 3 of Matthew that we needed to get back into the gospel in order to follow along and to observe, as Jesus' own disciples did, the words and the works of Christ so that we may learn more about our Savior. And in fact, that we would become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and this has been my prayer personally. I know that this has been the prayer of um, our pastors and just our leadership team here at Grace Hill to show Christ, to present Christ that we may behold Christ and that we may learn and be in awe of him and that our lives would be transformed as a result of it. 
And I hope that you have been pursuing the, the same goal and the same purpose. This morning, Jesus, in this passage, will teach his disciples a very valuable lesson on discipleship. All of a sudden, as a result of following Jesus, they get caught up in unexpected storm. However, in the middle of the storm, Jesus intends to reveal more of himself and to teach his followers what it means to follow him. I think if I was gonna ask you a question, do you want to follow Christ or do you follow Christ? Many of you will raise your hand. What does that mean? What does it mean? To follow Christ, this passage will teach us, is to surrender to him and to entrust yourself completely into his care, no matter what you may be dealing with, even this very moment. I want you to look with me at verse 20, or at verse 18, Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. We'll read through verse 27, and we will look at this passage together for the remainder of our time here. Matthew writes, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was sleeping. And they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of men is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Short passage for us this morning, verses 23 through 27, but it packs a punch here for us. I want you to, to consider this, this overarching theme that we'll be unpacking here this morning. Like the son who entrusted himself to the father, disciples of Jesus must learn to trust his presence, his power, and his goodness in all of life's circumstances. See, we learned something about Jesus here this morning. And this lesson that we learn must impact and instruct us as we behold Jesus that we would do likewise. And so in this chaotic episode here in verses 23 through 27, Matthew presents for us three scenes that teach this one valuable lesson. And I want you to look at these three scenes. Number one, we're gonna look at the turbulent sea and what it teaches. Number two, we're gonna look at the troubled sailors. And finally, we're gonna look at the trusting savior. So look with me at verse 23, the turbulent sea. The event 
that takes place here in verses 23 through 27 actually starts as we read in verse 18 when Jesus begins, look at verse 18 again. He begins by instructing, by giving orders to cross over to the other side. However, before they actually get the opportunity to go in, and maybe they, they started going and started approaching the boat, Jesus' group here was interrupted by a scribe and then a disciple who actually expressed a desire, a wish to follow him, to follow Jesus. And as you might recall last week, we studied one wanted to follow Jesus immediately. He's so fired up after seeing the miracles that Jesus had performed. He goes on and is like, I'm going to jump on this bandwagon. Jesus, I will go with you wherever you go. Tell me where we're going. I'm there. And so Jesus here pauses. He warns him to count the cost and be ready to surrender everything. You sure? You sure you're ready to follow me wherever I go? Because quite frankly, I don't have a place to lay my head. We may experience some turbulence in life. Now, the, the other here, the other disciple in verse 21, he wanted to take care of some earthly matters before he could follow Jesus. So Jesus warns him also about delaying his discipleship. Now, did both of these men walk away from Jesus as the rich young ruler would later? We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. Maybe they actually thought through this quickly and they say, we're just going to go. Or maybe they walked away. We, we don't know. The author simply proceeds with the narrative as they finally get into the boat to cross over to the other side where Jesus could continue to minister because verse 28 says, when they came to the other side, there was another miracle. Obviously, this is Jesus's goal to continue to minister, to continue to reveal who he is. When it says that his disciples followed him, we don't know whether these were the 12 disciples. Perhaps there were just other disciples who were following Jesus because the 12 then are sent out in Matthew chapter 10, so, so it's unclear. But soon after they get into the boat and they begin to sail, notice that word again, this key word that Matthew constantly inserts when he wants to grab your attention. He says, when they got into the boat, they followed him and behold, like pay attention. Matthew writes that there arose a great storm on the sea. Now, historically, it appears that these kind of storms, they occurred frequently on this sea, given its geographical location. The, the lake is about seven miles across at its widest and about 160 feet deep. And, and it sits around 700, just under 700 feet below sea level. And just north, if you look at the map, just north of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet high. So since it's very hot down in the valley during the day, just as the sun goes down, the hot air comes up and it collides with the cooler air of the mountain and it causes great storm and it often happens. In fact, if you were to Google even today, a uh, storm on the Sea of Galilee, you will find, like if you go to Israel Times or something like that, dot com, you will find quite often them reporting of similar things happening, like Ships get lost, 
people, you know, are drowning because of the storm. So this is not some crazy thing that happened. This happens all the time because of where this sea is situated. But the language that's used here is used most often of earthquakes and hurricanes. Like, look at verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm, great storm. This was a turbulent storm, so much so that he says the boat was being covered with waves. The board was repeatedly being covered. That's the the language here. Repeatedly being washed over. But consider this for a moment. Uh, Did Jesus intentionally endanger his disciples by ordering them to get into the boat and to go through this turbulence? Did he not know what awaited them? Now, we know Christology, right? We, we know that, that he knows. Well, what, what was his purpose then? Was it to, to save this demon-possessed man on the other side, or, or was it to test his disciples? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Christ knew that a turbulent storm was going down. And he sent his disciples right into the midst of the storm anyways. Was it to punish them? No. It wasn't to punish them. Friends, trials and and tests in our lives are not punitive, but they are instructive. And I think this is exactly what the Lord means to do. I think Jesus' goal was in fact his next stop in verse 28 the country of the Gadarenes where he would cast out this demon and once again demonstrate his authority, not over just sickness and nature, but also over the spiritual world. His goal is to demonstrate his superiority as the promised Messiah who came to deal with sin first and foremost. That's the goal. But that being the case, remember church, we are dealing with a Um, multitasking God who has many objectives. And one immediate objective in the midst of this storm is to draw out some more of their doubts and to reveal lack of faith in his disciples so that they might learn to trust his presence, his power, and his goodness. As I was over this past week, preparing for, for the sermon, reading commentaries and, and other sermons, many of which came and, and, and they had this modern sort of spin or interpretation on this particular passage, which, which in general goes something like this. Just as Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, when, he, when you call upon him, he will calm the storm of your life and give you lasting peace. So in general, different things, different maybe emphasis, but in general, this is, this is the call. Because Jesus calmed their storm, he will calm your storm as well. Just call out to him. Now, it is true that Jesus can and often does calm storms in our lives. Many of our trials can be likened to these storms, health storms, marriage storms, family storms, church storms, financial storms, career storms, 
But friends, remember, this is not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come in order to put away your storm, in order to deal with my storm. Certainly the the focus of this passage is bigger than just merely calming the storm. And dear friends, I know that some of you are suffering this morning, and and I don't want to make light of those sufferings. And if you're not directly suffering, you are suffering today with those who are suffering and going through various pains. I only want you to see that what Jesus intends to do here is much bigger. It is even much sweeter. It is much more satisfying to root out, to root rather our faith in him as our savior. Because go back to Matthew chapter one and think about what he said, what he promised. Jesus came to be what? God with us. And verse 21 says that he came to save his people from their sins. That's the primary objective, why Jesus came. He came to deal with our sin. And so his goal is here to root our faith in him as our savior, but not only that, as our sustainer, so that we would know him and rest in him, even as we go through our various storms storms and turbulences in life because they are inevitable. They are inevitable. We must expect the storms, but we must also rest in our storms. Think about this. What is one thing that Jesus made very clear to anyone who wished to follow after him up to this point, up to chapter eight? Remember Matthew chapter five, verse 11 Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's a promise, friends. You're going to have storms. Why? Because you decided to follow me. Welcome to the party. That's a promise. Uh, Matthew 6, the next chapter, verse 25. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Don't worry about these things. And so the assumption is that, hey, we'll be put into uh, situations, we'll be putting into places by following Jesus where we will be tempted to worry. It's like, where are you, Lord? What is going on? How come I don't feel your presence? I don't feel like you care. Or right before that, we read verse 21 or verse 20 of chapter 8. He says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That's what you're going into. That's what you're entering into. So telling them up front about the troubles that await them, Jesus proceeds ahead to teach his disciples this very valuable lesson. Remember, that just before they got into the boat, the the disciples witnessed the reservation of two other men, the scribe and the other disciple, who wished to follow but had some excuses. Like, we'll go with you, but uh, I I don't know. We'll go with you, but let me just take care of my business. Let me just take care of my stuff. And so maybe they're thinking, maybe the disciples who got into the boat, they're, they're thinking as well, you know, even if they don't trust Christ, we do. We're going to follow him now. 
And we're going to follow him no matter where he goes. We're just going to go for it. And they climb into the boat and behold, a storm. A storm to emphasize the person of Christ, but also to expose lack of faith in Christ. So friends, number one, I want you to see that we are to expect the storm, expect to be tested in our faith. The issue is not the mere presence of the turbulence, but our response to the turbulence. So notice that the storm at sea here, it reveals two very distinct reactions, two distinct reactions. Jesus here is resting, verse 24, but Jesus himself was sleeping. But his disciples are restless. They're full of fear. They're full of worrying. They're doubting whether their Lord even cares for them in such desperate situations. So we go now from the turbulent sea to the troubled sailors. Look with me at verse 24 at the end. But Jesus himself was sleeping and they came to him and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Notice the contrast. In the midst of this violent storm, when it feels that in a few brief moments, everything will be lost, the creator of the world is silent, sleeping, peaceful. It seems as though he's completely oblivious to the current situation. Have you ever experienced something like this before? Maybe those of you who have young children, I'm sure you've experienced that. Dads, dads, have you um, slept through a storm at home? Amen. Guilty as charged. Your wife is up all night, attending to the key kids who all agree to just wake up every five minutes. That, that's, that's the way they're going to operate that night. And, and she's worn out. She's exhausted. And, and maybe she's even calling for help and calling you, but you only find out about the storm in the morning. Like, what? When you try to wake her up, like, why are you still sleeping, you know? That's, that's the kind of storm. Jesus is sleeping through it all. But notice verse 25, his disciples, they're troubled. They see Jesus sleeping in the back of the ship. So that's what Mark chapter 4, the parallel account tells us. Mark chapter 4. And they're just. Not sure what's going on. It's a storm. We're entering the storm. We're good? Okay, we're good. They um, look back, they look behind, and they see Jesus sleeping in the back of the boat, and they're angry. How? Could he just sleep there when the waters are rising, not only outside of the boat, but also right next to him? And maybe, perhaps, maybe I'm thinking about the picture here. Maybe they waited for a little bit. It's like, okay, how long is he going to sleep there? Are you kidding me? Like, look at us. Hoping that Jesus maybe will get a clue and would react. But Matthew tells us that, no, they came to him and they woke him up and they cried out. It wasn't like, you know, you're trying to wake up your kids in the morning or your spouse or she wakes you up like, hey, honey, it's...
Time to wake up. No, I think given everything that's taken place, they cry out, they yell, they're panicking. Lord, why? Save us. We perish. Think about this. Professional sailors, professional fishermen. And if we were to consider the makeup of this group, like I said at the beginning, we, we don't know who these disciples were. But if they were Christ's disciples, at least four of them were professional fishermen. This is the kind of um, situation that would be right in their wheelhouse. And look what they do. They are running to a carpenter. Professionals running to a guy to save them who has absolutely zero clue about what to do, right? Or does he? They're calling on Jesus. No, these, these men, they call on Jesus because their situation required God's intervention, not man's. He wasn't a mere carpenter. They call him out and they said, Lord, master, save, terrified. Save, save. This, this word term here focuses on one complete act of deliverance. Save us. We need you to rescue us. We know you can. Now is as good as time as any for you to demonstrate your power. Now, did the disciples know that Jesus was God capable of doing such things? Yes. They knew, first of all, that, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not merely from danger, but from their sins. But they also observed and seen all kinds of miracles up to this point performed by their teacher, by their master, which demonstrated and authenticated his claims to be the promised Messiah. But think about this, as you probably remember, as we read in verse 27, even after their miracle even after what happens here, knowing what they know about Jesus Christ, they are terrified of Jesus and they marvel at Jesus. They marvel at his power. Why? Because even during this time, Jesus needed to teach them more. They needed to learn something more about Christ. Why? Because they are terrified. They run to Jesus in fear, which only stresses the reality of their circumstance. I mean, we can't blame these guys. If you're sitting here and you're, you're like, man, bunch of wimps, don't blame them. In such, in such situations, it would be less than human not to be a bit of a chicken. Professional men assess the reality of the situation, and I'm sure they try to do something about it, and they concluded, we are dying. Notice, they don't say that we're about to die. Lord, save us, because if you don't, we're about to die. But the tense here is, we have already began to, be, to perish. And check this out. Jesus opens up his eyes, and totally aware of the situation, he asks them one very simple question. Why are you afraid? And notice, I love what Matthew does here. Before Jesus even gets up, before he stands up, he addresses the disciples' hearts. 
Can you, can you imagine this? Can you, do you see this? Jesus is so calm, so serene, and, and his peace almost arrests the attention of his disciples. It is still crazy outside. It is still turbulent inside. They are perishing just as they were three seconds ago before Jesus opened their, his eyes, but they are now almost like staring at Jesus because Jesus is addressing their hearts. Why are you so terrified as to shrink back? And I love this because Jesus answers his own question, doesn't he? He says, you men of little faith. Jesus confronts these men for their lack of faith. And the question that we need to answer is faith in what? Faith in what? Now, I want you to remember something that sometimes we're, we're very quick to judge these men because we wrongly assume that they knew everything we know about Jesus Christ. Church, we have, and it's a privilege to have what we have. We have full canon of God's revelation. We have four accounts of the gospels, right? Uh, plus all of the letters which fully explain to us Christ, full Christology presented to us. And every year we read these accounts and our understanding of Christ and his power and his person and his work. All of that allows us to, we, we understand it more so that we can worship him better. But all of this scripture here, it presents Christ in all of his sufficiency and glory to us. But their doctrine of Christ is pretty shallow at this point because they only spend one year with Christ or so. But even so here, considering all that, Jesus is not pleased with the quality of their faith. So what was it then that they should have known about Jesus and believed at this very point to withstand this trial of faith? You know, I think we wrongly assume, as many commentators claim, that these disciples should have known that if Jesus died with them in this storm, the kingdom would die, which couldn't happen. So he shows up as the promised Messiah, and he's in this boat. So if he goes, if the king goes, then the kingdom goes too. No Christ, no cross, no plan B, everything is lost. And some conclude here that they, this is what they should have thought of. And, and I think it's a stretch to fault them for not making this connection in the middle of this storm, in the middle of this chaos. We lose a lot of theology when we experience turbulence. Right now we're sitting and we're like, praise the Lord, Jesus is awesome. But when we face trials, we, we forget much. And, and consider the disciples, they didn't understand the whole thing. In fact, after Jesus died and resurrected, they still didn't understand what was happening. So what is it then? What did Jesus promise to them in Matthew 1 through 8 for what he's now holding them accountable? That they wouldn't have troubles? No. Where do he answer that? Jesus never promised exemption from danger. But do you recall in Matthew 6, go back to Matthew 6, Jesus' instruction to them against worry and against anxiety? In fact, the phrase, you of little faith, was used in that very context. Look at Matthew 6, verse 30. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? What is the context here in Matthew 6 and, and into 7? The, the context is don't store up treasure on earth. Treasure Christ and his agenda. Seek his kingdom Verse 33, and his righteousness first, and everything else will be added to your plate. Our preoccupation as followers of Jesus should not be primarily about the affairs of this life, including this very storm, but Christ and his agenda and his kingdom. And the Father, he'll take care of everything else. If he cares for the birds and and for the flowers, will he not take care of you? That, that's the question. That's the rhetorical question. Of course he does. And this is precisely what his disciples forget at this very moment. In fact, if you read the parallel account of Mark chapter 4 of the same event, some of the disciples are quoted as saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? Lack of faith in God's care for them. That's what gets them into trouble. They begin to prioritize their physical well-being over and above resting in God's care, trusting that he knows what's best for them and he's able to certainly accomplish it accordingly. And Jesus puts them into this situation to reveal more of himself to them and to build up their faith. This was a teaching moment. Some of you, like I said, are going through the same today. You are troubled in the storm. But are you like these desperate men running to Christ, crying out to him for help in a very simple way, Lord, save me. I die. Three words in the original. I die. Save me. At times it it seems God sees fit to create turbulent situation to force us into places where we are compelled to cry out, friends. Where we see our inability, helplessness, and then we shift our focus on Christ and we say, Lord, help us. You might say, well, I don't know how to pray for help. I love what one man said, when a man really wants the Savior, he does not need anyone to teach them how to pray. You just go. You run. You cry. But also, friends, in the middle of your health storm, family storm, career storm, or whatever other storm you're in, are you learning to prioritize Christ and his agenda, resting and waiting on him? Because here's the reality. Here's the reality. Sadly, in this life, listen, in this life, not every person gets healed. Not every marriage gets restored. Not every prodigal son or daughter returns home. We suffer greatly. But do you believe, brother, do you 
believe, sister, that God cares for you even in the midst of your pain and suffering and will always give you aid. It may not be what you anticipate. It may not even be when you anticipate it. But Jesus always demonstrates his care for you. Why? Because he already has on the cross. He already has on the cross. All you got to do is to look up to the cross and remember Romans. He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him for us all. Will he not also with him give us all things? Of course he will. Of course he cares. He is full of goodness. He is full of grace. Remember what what Jesus told Paul when he asked the Lord to remove his affliction, his own storm, whatever it was. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, Friend, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe this to be true today? Trust Christ in the storm, friend. Walk by faith. We have looked at the turbulent sea and the call to expect to be tested in the storms of life. We've looked at the troubled sailors' reaction, right, in the storm and the call to trust Jesus in our trials of life. And finally, look at the other reaction. The troubled men compared to the trusting Savior. Trusting Savior. As... We were looking at the first scene. I asked the question, did Jesus know that he was going into the storm by crossing over to the other side? And we answered, and we answered, yes, yes. And as we saw at the end of verse 24 in Matthew 8, Jesus is sleeping. The Savior is not in the least bit disturbed. Why? Why? Why don't you think about this for a brief moment? Why? Why isn't the Savior freaking out like the rest of the men are in the boat? And here's the, here's the answer. Because the Son was fully assured in the care of his Father. That's why. The storm, as any other storm, was firmly held in God's own hand, and the Son was fully committed to God's plan. That's where he could sleep. Matthew Henry, he wrote this. He says, this was a sleep, not of security like Jonah's in the storm, but of holy serenity and dependence upon his father. He slept to show that he was really truly man and subject to the sinless infirmities of our nature. His work made him weary and sleepy and he had no guilt no fear within to disturb his repose. Those that can lay their heads upon the pillow of clear conscience may sleep quietly and sweetly in the storm. Remember this this psalm, the, the, the verse in Psalm 4, verse 8 says, In peace I both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It was his absolute trust and confidence in the Father which allowed Christ to sleep in the middle of the storm, 
fully man, absolutely, weary of his labors, but acts nothing like the men around him. So let's again consider the lesson, right? We set out to study Christ, to study his disciples, to be more like Christ, to learn from him. So what is it that we learn now? That in this life, as a man, Jesus demonstrates to man what it's like to fully trust God, to trust his presence, his power, and his goodness. But there's something else that we need to learn about God, about Jesus here, that he's not only man, but he is fully God who controls the affairs of nature and with the word can alter the direction of the wind and immediately silence the waves. Notice that his human fatigue didn't damper his divine power. And having addressed first his disciples, all the while it's still turbulent and it's still storming, Jesus gets up. Look at verse 26 in the middle, and then he gets up. Then he got up. And he rebukes the source of the storm, the wind, and immediately it becomes calm. Amazing. I mean, it usually takes a while for the sea to settle down after the wind stops blowing because the turbulent waves, that's an effect of the cause. Once you put out the cause, the effect, it takes a while for everything to settle down. But not with this Jesus, not here. Just like the leper was immediately cleansed in the earlier portion of the chapter, the centurion's son was healed at the moment Jesus spoke. Peter's mother Right? In law was suddenly healed at his touch. We are told that the wind and the sea settled down at an instance. Jesus is not simply a man. He is the almighty God whose voice is powerful and majestic as we read in Psalm 29. Shaking the mountains and silencing the seas. And notice the response here in verse 27. And the men were amazed. Who is this one. Well, I thought you knew even the winds and the sea obey him. We thought we knew our master, our Lord, but we don't. Who is this one? And the parallel accounts of Mark and Luke, they revealed that the disciples, they began, they became greatly terrified. Even more terrified than before. Jesus called them out for their terror. Why are you afraid? But now the result of observing the scene, they become greatly terrified. Only this time, friends, only this time the object of their terror is different. Now, Jesus' authority, power, and presence fill their hearts to the point of great reverence. Listen, church, Everything in our world is, in, is under the sovereign power of Jesus Christ. He is the sustainer. He is the creator, and he's the controller of all of his creation. But I want you to notice something more. It is humbling to know that this powerful Jesus, powerful God, is willing to use his power on our behalf. He 
he sheltered and protected his disciples in the middle of the storm. He is so gracious. The question is, will we not praise our Savior this morning? Will we not learn and strive to to imitate and trust him as he trusted the Father? In conclusion, consider this question one more time. Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Why are you afraid? And, and, and think about this. Was this question posed by Christ because he didn't know? Or to make the disciples search their own hearts? And I think it's the latter, right? Listen, the degree of our faith or lack of faith is one of Jesus' most common concerns throughout the gospel. Jesus cares for our faith. He exposes lack of faith, and he commands great faith like he did with this centurion Gentile. Man, great faith. Why are you so afraid? And you'll notice that is Matthew's theme here in this entire chapter. Jesus is addressing Likewise, each of us this morning, so that we may learn to trust his power, his presence, and his goodness in all of life's circumstances. Faith is fundamental for those who would be followers of Christ. But how do we grow in faith? I want you to to consider a few key points here. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul writes, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You want to grow in faith? The more we hear of Christ from the Bible, the more we study, the more we unpack his power, his care, right, that's being displayed in the life of others, the more our confidence in Christ will grow. Look, we will always struggle with fears in this life because the world that we live in is not a safe place, but gradually as we learn to trust Christ more and more as the disciples did over the next couple of years, we will become more bolder and bolder and more confident in the Lord, not because we become someone great, but because we understand our Jesus better, our Lord better. And you trace that through the Gospels and into Acts, and you're like, what happened to Peter? What happened to John? Why are these men so different? It's because they've spent more time with Christ and they know who he is now. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And in verse 25, the author tells us to to encourage one another and persevere in faith. And immediately after that follows Hebrews 11, the chapter on faith. One after another, the author presents these men of faith to build faith in us. In fact, he goes on to say, two chapters later in in Hebrews 13 and 7, he says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Friends, this is what we need to do to each other. Daily encouraging one another to look to Christ, to be assured that he knows, that he cares. 
I, I, I'm thinking about the scene again. If the disciples who were in the boat, if they were to huddle together, and if they were to just reason, biblically reason, and, and say, here's the Savior, here's the promised Messiah, here he is. Can we not trust him? Because if he's in our presence, will he not take us through this storm? And if they, if, if they did that, I think the reaction would be completely different. They wouldn't be overwhelmed with fear. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, he concludes in verse 2, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The call for us this morning is to display Christ in front of us. Focus on Christ. He died for you, friend. If you believe in him, if you trust him, he died for you. Will he not sustain you through the end? You can trust him. He does not promise to remove the storm, but he promised to sustain you in it and to grow you and to develop you so that he gets maximum glory. What an amazing Savior. Father, we thank you for such Savior. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that we have in him, and we repent. We repent for our lack of faith. We repent for, like Peter later on in just a few more chapters, looking at the storm, looking at the waves, and losing sight of Christ. And we often do that. And we ask, Father, that we would focus on him. You're well pleased in him. You love him and you love us in him. And we thank you that even when we do fail, and we fail often, you are faithful to us. And you bring us back. You confront us. You correct us. You, you return us back to the way so that we may focus on him. Help us, Father. Come along, each one of us, who are dealing with some difficult things in their lives, especially we pray that you would give us our eyes to see these people, these members, and encourage them practically, lovingly. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.